0: This morning uh, we'll uh, finish our study of the life of Jacob. We'll bid him farewell in, in some ways. Of course, he'll make a little bit of appearances as we continue our study of Genesis, but uh, I'm excited to be able to come here and uh, study this passage with you. It's been a glorious day, hasn't it? It's a good day. Um, I praise God what he's doing in this church and continues to bless us by using us. And I'm so thankful. I'm so encouraged. My, my cup runneth over today and I'm so thankful for to be here with you. I I wouldn't want to be anywhere else this morning, and I trust uh, the same is true for many of us. Here we are in Genesis 35, just because we have so much going on today, and we're going to receive new members at the end of our service. Let me just, uh, rather than read the whole passage for us, let me just read a few verses for us. We'll begin in Genesis 35, uh, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Then let us rise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, which we now can consider. We pray that you would bless us and help us to know your truth and apply it to our lives, that we might see something of Jesus in it, fall more in love with our Savior because of it. As we seek after him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in 1874 when the sociologist Richard Dugdale discovered that a surprising number of inmates in Ulster County, New York, were all related to one another. In fact, they were all descendants of one man named Max Duke, who was born 54 years earlier. And so this sociologist began to chronicle uh, the descendants and the life of this man, Max Duke, and he found that among his descendants, seven of them were murderers, 50 were prostitutes, and 60 ...were convicted thieves. A similar study has been done... Uh, ...with the New England preacher Jonathan Edwards... ...and his wife Sarah. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, of course, is famous for many reasons... ...but one of which is the 70 resolutions... ...that he wrote when he was 19 years old. I don't know any 19-year-olds in here. Well, I commend to you Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he resolved, first of all... ...I won't read all 70, just the first one. Resolve number one. I said, resolve that I will do whatever I think... ...most conducive to God's glory... Well, from Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah came one vice president, three senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, and I think, best of all, over 100 foreign missionaries. Both men, Max Duke and Jonathan Edwards, I think illustrate the power of a legacy that we leave behind us, either for godliness or wickedness. In other words, it's helpful when we think about these men to realize that life is more than what you do on Saturday. Life, in fact, is more than just about you. It is in many ways about what you leave behind. So here we are with Jacob one more time, and his long journey has reached an end. Interesting to me that the journey of Jacob is ending kind of where it began. He returns to the place where God first spoke to him. His, His life has come full circle. Now, I'll tell you, Jacob won't won't die until we get to Genesis 49, and so we'll see little cameos of him, Uh, but the focus will soon shift to his son, Joseph, and to a lesser degree to his son, Judah. And so here we are, we we end with Jacob, we bid him farewell in some ways, and uh, I'm happy to be able to do so on a high note, A, a high note, not because of Jacob's virtue, hopefully we've been dispelled of such things at this point, but because God is committed to his promises. Like the promises that that God gave to Jacob first were found in Genesis 28, when God appeared to him there. And he said, I promise to protect you, and I promise to provide you, and I promise to bring you back to Bethel. And now we see those promises are being fulfilled here in Genesis 35, as Jacob returns to the place in which God told him that he would bring him back. It proves to us, once again, not that we need more proof, but here it is, if you do, that God is trustworthy. In your life as well. That God will keep the promises he has made to you. He is faithful to them. And I find his faithfulness somewhat stunning in that it does not depend upon our virtue. I mean, Jacob, I think, is the chief example of God's grace. In other words, God, when he calls people to himself, even as our brother and sister testified just a moment ago, he's not looking for diamonds in the rough. You realize that? God, when he saves people, is not looking for people that are worthy of salvation. And if there's any doubt of that, just study the life of Jacob. Just remember what we considered last week in Genesis 34. I mean, you can't pack more evil in a a chapter, more wickedness from this family, God's people. And yet God's grace continues to them. Jacob's story is a story about how God saves people despite their sin. And I would suggest to you, Christian, that's your story too. I think what you need to know this week is that God is faithful to his promises, that God is worthy of your devotion. So let's just review just where we were left off last week. This believing family, the one believing family that we're aware of on the whole earth, is in an absolute mess. Uh, the daughter has been sexually assaulted. The dad seems to care less. And because the dad cared less, you have two sons, Simeon and Levi, who through deceit and the desecration of the most sacred religious rite at this time, slaughter all the men in an entire village, and then the sons descend upon that village, plunder it, seems to enslave the widows and orphans that are left, and Jacob concludes, you boys are really making my life hard. That's where we left off. Jacob is not where he's supposed to be. He is not doing anything he's supposed to be doing. Jacob and his family, in other words, are in need of a revival. And we'll learn what a revival looks like in Genesis 35 as God graciously gives it to him. We see that, first of all, a revival begins with repentance. Notice scene number one, four scenes this morning, Jacob's repentance. We see it begin here in verse 1 of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So God comes and he begins to speak to Jacob. He talks to him. And that's good. Because we needed God to talk after Genesis 34. We, we need the word of God after that. We, in fact, we all need the word of God. The word of God is the most precious thing which God can give us. I've been told that when the moderator of the Church of Scotland participates in a coronation service of the king or queen of England, he presents the new monarch with a Bible and with these words. The most precious thing in the world, oh, excuse me, the most precious thing this world affords, God's living word. To which I say, amen. And I think the word of God is coming to Jacob now is precious to him. It's God's word to him. It will change his life. God comes and speaks to Jacob. Now, God, we've seen God do this four previous times. He's going to do it one more time in Genesis 35. In other words, I want you to understand that when God comes and speaks to these patriarchs, he's not doing so every day. This is kind of a once in a decade kind of thing. And so I think that's important for us to understand. There, there are some Christian circles who think God speaks to them all the time. That God's always talking to you. He, he's, a, he's, like a, he's like a junior high girl. Like he's very, very chatty. Okay? And there's other Christian circles that say, well, God never speaks. Right? He's like a high school girl. Right? He, he's up in his bedroom with the earbuds in and the door's closed. Okay? So what, does God still speak to us? Well, he can if he like. Right? I mean, one of the cool things about being God is you kind of get to do whatever you want to do. You can talk to whoever you want, whenever you want. But I believe God almost always speaks through his word. I've been praying that he would do so even today as we hear his word. But Jacob didn't have the word of God, of course. And so God would speak to him in an audible voice. You ask, does God still do things like this? Well, as I said, he can if you like. I think probably he does in extraordinary circumstances. I mean, I, as I just shared with you last week, I was traveling the Middle East uh, earlier this month, and I hear testimony after testimony of God speaking to these Muslim men and women, often in dreams. We'll consider that more when we think about the dreams of Joseph. I know of a, of a Northern Virginia Muslim woman who, who heard in a dream simply these three words, I am the word. She heard that, I am the word. This is at least according to her testimony. She had no idea what that meant, I am the word. What does that mean? She Googled it, okay? And Google led her to John 1, and she's already reading the Gospel of John. And came to faith in Jesus Christ. So, right. And I think there are a lot of stories like that. So God can speak. I think God does speak. God, God comes and burdens us. I, I would testify. I shared this with the elders on Wednesday night. I think at least two or three times God burdened me. I didn't hear an audible voice, but God very clearly in my heart, in my mind, showed me what I was supposed to do immediately. And I think God sometimes does this in our lives. But I do think it's important to balance that with a couple truths. One, when God speaks to us, it's very rare. I think this is a, just a handful of times, maybe once in a lifetime, which God does so. And when he does speak, he, it's very, very important to us. Like God doesn't come and say, hey, did you watch the game last night? Okay. No, when God comes in and burdens our heart, it's kind of life-changing realities. It's going to d- redirect us in our life. And as we see here with Jacob... And God calls him, he says, I want you to go to Bethel. Now, what's so important about Bethel? Well, you might remember that Bethel was where Abraham first entered the promised land. And he got to the land in which God had promised him. And what did, uh, what did Abraham do? Grandpa Abraham, he built an altar there and he worshipped God publicly amongst his people. And then you'll remember that Abraham uh, failed greatly, kind of like his grandson Jacob did down in Egypt, where he let another man take his wife. And after repenting of that, you know where Abraham went to? It wasn't on his way, but where did he go? He went back to Bethel. He said, I want to go back, and I want to, I want to go back to where, where it kind of first began with God. I want to start over. And I think we see something very similar happening to Jacob. It was at Bethel that God first met Jacob when he was totally desperate. Remember, Jacob has been lying and stealing from his family. He finally has to run for his life because his brother is going to kill him. And, and there he is sleeping uh, in, in the middle of this nowhere place. And God appears to him in this stairway to heaven. And God says, I am going to be with you your entire life. I'm going to bring you back. And God now comes to him, and he's 20 miles shy of Bethel, as we talked about last week. And he says, it's time to return, time to go back to where we started. Let's come back to God, right? So this is kind of the end of his story. He starts here, and now he's had all his adventures, and now finally he's returning. It's like, it's like Frodo returning to Hogwarts, okay? I mean, he's going back to where it all started. Okay? It's time to return, okay? And so there he goes and pitches. I know where he lives and doesn't live in Hogwarts. Give me a break, okay? He's <laughs> like, what's that guy doing? I just don't want to admit that I know that, okay? All right. So you go, let's go back. We're going to renew our soul. We're going to recall those sacred memories of 40 years ago. When I called you, I spoke to you, go back there. You need to be revived. I wonder, my brothers and sisters, do you need revival? I mean, it was like at one point in your life where you're just hungering for God and like you couldn't get enough of him and Chasing after him and righteousness and his word and prayer and witnessing. And now the busyness of life just, things kind of dull. Just kind of going through the motions. I wonder if there's a time in your life where your delight in God was just everything to you. And now it's dwindling in the midst of all these twinklings that's going on in this world. Maybe God would even call you today. Why don't you come back to me? Let's start over. You say, well, what should I do? If God's calling me to to revival, what should I do? Well, you should do what Jacob did, which is a, a phrase I have not often said, okay? I often say don't do what Jacob did, but do what Jacob did, he repented. Revival always starts with God's word coming to us, and then we respond. It's like two pedals on a bike. This is how we make progress, right? God calls, Jacob must act. God commands, we must obey. And amazingly, Jacob does, as you see in verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Now, it's stunning to me that they're worshiping foreign gods. We know, of course, of Rachel's attachment to her father uh, Laban's idols. That seems to have spread throughout the, the, this uh, covenant family. And, uh, uh, no, there's no doubt that they must have picked up some idols in Shechem as they were living there. Jacob clearly knows about them. Doesn't seem to care up to this point. But now he cares. He says, we're done with those. He says, we need to wash our bodies. We need to change our clothes. This is a, to kind of a ritualized way to symbolize an inward change. It reminds me of what Paul would say in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. We need to we be who we are. We need to change. And so Jacob hears, hears God speak to him and he calls this family meeting. I, I was talking to my kids about this passage last night. I said, do you like it when daddy calls family meetings? Right. No, they, family meetings are thumbs down. I like family meetings, but they didn't care for family meetings much. Well, Jacob gets everybody on the couch gathers them around, he says, things need to change in us, right, up to this point, he's been a very apathetic father, doesn't really care about his kids, now we find Jacob leading his home, he's completely devoting himself to God, he's saying to him, hey, things are out of control, I'm convicted by my sin, we need to start going to church again, has anybody seen a Bible, we're going to need that as well, right? And you can imagine him going through his kids and say, sweetheart, listen, you can't dress like that anymore. And you know, Bobby, I know you're, you're, you're sneaking my beers and that's gotta stop. And honey, you're watching Oprah and she's no help at all. We're turning her off. And Joey, you're staying out to 2 a.m. I don't know what you're doing, but it can't be good. Curfew's 10 now. And, and Lucy, you're 18 and your boyfriend's 32 and we're done with that nonsense, right? He is getting his family back to God. He's cleaning house. And I say, better late than never. Amen? I want to give. Let's give Jacob an applause. That a boy, right? We don't do that often. And by the way, he says, "Oh boy, uh, uh, we're moving." You see, verse three: "Let us arise and go to Bethel, that I may make an altar there to God." I love this. Who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone? He says, "Listen, God. God has answered me every time I've been in trouble." and I've kind of been in trouble my entire life. Right? Jacob messes up, God rescues. Jacob messes up, God rescues. And he says, we're moving. Now, of course, his son's just murdered an entire village, so they probably want to move anyway, right? The neighbors are, are going to see us a little bit differently. But they're not just moving, they're moving to Bethel. Right? You, you can see him. God, listen, guys, God's been so good to us. We've been terrible to him. Things are changing. We, we're out of the here. We're going to the place where God has called us. Repentance, by the way, and I speak literally, sometimes involves a new address. It certainly adds new, new activities, new friends. It might involve a new church. He says, we're going to Bethel. We're going to build an altar there. In other words, we're going to form a worshiping community. We're going to publicly gather and worship God. And what's amazing is they all agree, as you see in verse 4. So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. It's like the Christians in Ephesus, that revival begins when they destroy their articles of paganism. I was once in uh, in Ghana. You know, we as a church go to Ghana frequently. At least we did pre-COVID. And I I literally, I had the great privilege to literally baptize a witch doctor, a repentant witch doctor, who literally burned his idols. I mean, not like figuratively burned them. He actually picked them up in the house, took them out in the front yard, and lit them on fire. And then said, "I'm ready to be baptized." And we see something like, here's our idols. And they go and they, they bury them. And you, you see that they gave them their, their, their uh, rings that were in their ears. This has to do with pagan uh, worship. These are talismans and pagan amulets. So I, just to be clear in verse 4 when he says, they gave them their earrings. He's, this is not, the Bible's not saying uh, jewelry's, jewelry's wrong. It's not saying it's a sin to have uh, rings in your ears if you're a girl. Okay, um, so sorry, just kidding. I just go relax. Okay, and this is a, uh let's get rid of the dream catchers and the good luck charms, and hey, we're going to bury those. And the St. Francis statue out front—he's going in the ground. And the Joel Olstein books and the Joyce Meyer and the Sarah Young Bible studies—we're burying all those things. We're getting rid of all those things. Okay, this is God's people—they're washed, they're reclothed, they're repented, and they're setting out to Bethel. Now, once you see this, all started with the sin and the mess in which they made their lives. And sometimes God lets us kind of go a little bit far. Let's out the leash, doesn't he? I think Franklin was testified to this in his life. God lets him get to a place of utter desperation. And it's at that point that we become more open to God. We, I heard this testimony from a, from a fellow pastor named Shea who trusted in high school when he was, um, excuse me, trusted in Christ when he was in high school. He was so excited he came home that night And he got his mom and his stepdad and his two older brothers, and he brought them into the living room, and he announced, I was saved tonight. And they all stared at him like he had lost his mind. He remembers his older brother saying, you're a total idiot, and turning around and and walking out of the room. Well, Shay continued to follow Jesus, and a few years passed, and he's at this point living at at college, and he gets a call from his mom, and his his mom is crying because his older brother uh, is getting a divorce. And uh, his wife had an affair, and she said, your brother's getting the best lawyer he could afford. He's, he wants to take the kids. And two weeks later, Shea we actually got a call from that brother, and this is what he said. Well, Shay writes, we, we, we didn't talk a whole lot, yet he calls me and asks me a question that chills me to this day. He says, Shay, I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my kids. I don't want to lose my wife what can your God do to save my marriage? Can you drive here and talk with us both and walk us through what your God can do to fix this? Shay says, I jump in my truck and start driving, but I'm 20 years old, and I kind of don't know a lot about marriage. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> he says, half the time, i am curled up in a fetal position, at least mentally, thinking there is no way I could do this. And the other half of the time, I'm trying to recall the five memory verses that I have memorized by that time. By the way, he says, my brother's very successful, executive at a computer company, extremely wealthy, huge house, three-car garage, pool in the back, the, all, the whole thing. And so he describes this scene with these words. I arrive at this massive house, and he, my brother's in one corner of the room, and his wife is in another corner, and sitting on the couch is my dad and my stepmom. And they're all looking at me, wanting to know, what can your God do to fix this? So I said, David and Terry, Jesus shared a story about two people who both built houses. One built a house on the sand with no foundation. When the storm came, it was devastated. The other man built his house on a solid rock. And when the storm came, it remained. I love you, but for your entire life, you have neglected every attempt that God has pursued you. And instead, you have followed your own way. You built up this phenomenal castle, and now the storm has come, and it has devastated your life. My advice as a humble 20-year-old would be to pursue Jesus. Anchor yourself into the rock I promise you there will be other storms to come, but you'll be sown in the rock. He loves you. He is pursuing you since you were born, and right now he is coming after you. I believe louder than ever, he is wooing you to himself if you would just surrender. He said, by the time our meeting ended, the chairs had scooted together. Tears were coming down. That week I watched my brother put his faith in Jesus Christ. I watched his wife put her faith in Jesus Christ. Over the next years, I watched their marriage reconcile, and now my brother has gone completely insane because he has quit his job and is a pastor now. That's insane for sure, right? He, he, he and his wife spend their days now counseling other couples who are going through adultery, sharing there is a God who can take the broken pieces of our world and put them back together. You believe that? This is we see right here. So, in the middle of the storm, Everything in this family is falling apart. And God speaks. And it's often at that time that we could hear him. I don't know how you come into this room. Maybe you're in a storm right now. Maybe you hear him calling you. Why don't you come back to Bethel? Why don't you come back to me? Why don't we repent? Why don't we bury our idols? Why don't we turn from our sin? And I pray that he would speak to you through his word. But let me tell you, you need more than a desire for revival. You need to act like Jacob did. You need to confess. You need to find a brother and sister in this church and say, "Listen, I want to tell you what's actually going on in my life because you are not strong enough to get out of the place in which you have put yourself. If if you were strong enough, you wouldn't be there anymore. You need the church. It's like God gives us the church to help us. My prayers have you hear God calling you today. You would not ignore it. So we see first scene number one: Jacob repents. Secondly, scene number two: Jacob returns. So Jacob's on the move now, and you see as soon as he's on the move. God blesses him. Note verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from the Lord fell upon the, the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So I just want you to see, he just takes the first step of obedience, and God comes running to bless him. Coming running with protection is Charles Spurgeon who said, how much of our personal trouble that we are now experiencing in this world would vanish as soon as you determined to stand up for God? Well, here we see God protecting them. They're surrounded by people who are clearly plotting vengeance upon Jacob's little clan. This, of course, would end God's plan to bless the world through the, uh, Jacob and his descendants. So God acts to keep his promises. God would do something very similar when Joshua would lead the Israelites into the promised land 400 years later. So we read in scripture, the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Now, you remember, by the way, Jacob fears these neighbors. You saw that in the end of chapter 34. God says, Don't worry, I'll protect you. What is it we sometimes sing? The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And so they march, and God blesses them and they safely arrive at Bethel as you see in verse 6 and Jacob came to Luz that is Bethel which is in the land of Canaan he and all the people who are with him and there he built an altar and he called that place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when when he fled from his brother God faithfully brings it back there Jacob erects an altar he calls it El Bethel which means God of Bethel Bethel means house of God so God of the house of God God is on his mind he builds this altar, as I said, that's an act of public worship. You notice when he called his family together, I don't know if you saw that in verse 2, it's just not his sons, but all who are with him. So his clan is growing, he has servants, he has people following him, he has his children and all the rest, and they all gather, the family and the servants and everyone, and they, they gather to worship, and they pray, and they, they sing, and they, they consider the Lord. I think this is a sign of transformation. When you have a desire to worship the Lord... Right, like, as I even began this message, like, would you rather be anywhere else but here today? I mean, if this is where you want to be, that's a sign of God working in your life. That you think, you wake up on Sunday morning, and think, I can't wait to sing to God. I can't wait to gather with these people of this happening for every week for thousands of years. And I get to do that and be in that, be in that lineage. And I get to sing and to pray and, 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 and participate in this baptism and hear from God's word. That's, I want that. I long for that. I don't have to work to, to get that. I, I long for that. And we see this happening here. And, and, he, and he, he leads his family in worship. And maybe he shared with his family, hey, you all need to know this is where God first appeared to me. This is, this is where I, I came to know God. This is where I was saved. Here, here, at this very spot. Some of you remember where you were saved, don't you? Right, that house, that bedroom. Maybe mom and dad up in that bedroom. Maybe, it was, maybe at youth camp. You remember that youth camp or that college dorm? You remember when you... Turn your life over to Christ. That's a very important place to you. It's a sacred place to you. When we were on sabbatical this summer, I took my kids to the place where their daddy first heard about Jesus as a, you know, as a 16-year-old, um, you know, borderline high school dropout and doing all sorts of nonsense and walking away from the Lord. And the the building's not there anymore. It's, they tore it down. Sadly, it's condos. But I still I knew that. I just want. But I wanted to go. I say, listen, kids. Your daddy was a mess. And this right there. I walked into a building. About 30 teenagers loved me immediately. And there's a man who stood up and told me about Jesus. And everything changed. Right? This is what, I think this is what Jacob's doing. Right? He, maybe he confesses his sin. God, we dishonored you before the Shechemites. You've called me to be a blessing to the nations. We're just a curse to the nations. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. I want, to, I, I want you to lead us. This is a dad and a husband leading his home. It's beautiful. They're seeking revival together. Right, Like running after God as he returns to the place in which God first called him. But you notice that doesn't spare them from sorrow, as you see in verse eight. Yeah. As we read, and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. She was buried under an oak uh, below Bethel. So he called its name Olam-Bakuth. Deborah, uh, we're told, is Rebecca's nurse. Remember now, Rebecca is Jacob's mom, and and remember she she left Haran. Um, to go marry Jacob's daddy, Isaac, right? And we read, I, th- I think, I don't remember, uh, earlier in Genesis, I want to say 23, chapter 24, she left, but we're told she took her nurse with her. We didn't know what her nurse's name was at that point. But now we read, this is the only place you'll read this, by the way, in Genesis 35, 8, that Rebecca's nurse, so Jacob's mom's nurse, was named Deborah. And so Deborah, I think it's very easy to imagine, was, would have known Jacob as a little boy. He was... She would have been his nanny, right? She, she would have, you know, kissed his bleeding knees and fixed his broken toys. And Jacob's mom is dead by, you know this, he never saw his mom again when he left the promised land, and so Deborah is kind of his connection to his mom, and maybe he's caring for her in her old age, and maybe she's a comfort to Leah and Rachel, because she's from the same town they were, and she could speak to them about old friends and growing up there, it must have been beautiful. Somehow Jacob must have sent for her, and 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 she comes and is is traveling with her them. And but now we she see she dies, leading the great sorrow amongst this this clan. He buries her under what he calls the oak of weeping. I, I just want you to see that sorrow is part of life. Like even at Bethel, even at the place of revival, you still need to deal with sorrow and death. Well, that leads us to scene number three: is Jacob's renewal. We pick it up in verse 9 and we see God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Patamaran and, and blessed him. We read, uh, we read about this, this. When God shows up throughout the book of Genesis, he shows up to bless. I, I want you to see that. God wants to bless you. We just get in the way. Right? Jacob repents. Jacob returns. And what does God do in response? He says, I'm here to bless Look what he says to him in verse 10, of course, in, in, in particular in the book of Genesis, but I think throughout scripture, God's blessings are almost always verbal, and so we see the verbal blessing of God in verse 10, and God said to him, your name is Jacob, no longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name, so he called his name Israel, right, you're no longer Jacob, the deceiver, the liar, the conniver, you're, you're Israel, he who strives with God, who clings to God, now you're thinking, right, wait, wait didn't this already happen? Right? Remember the, the, the midnight wrestling match? Right, God renamed him then. What what why is he doing it again? Why is he renaming him a second time? Well, because Jacob forgot. Right? God says, let me remind you, you're not the old man anymore. You're a new man. You've been acting like Jacob. Passive, right? Uh, self-focused. That's not you. You belong to me right? And so you need to be reminded of who you are. We, we need to be reminded of that. We often drift back into our old ways, and God gets our attention and says, listen, that's not who you are. You're not that person. You're a new creation in Christ. He's given us a new heart with new desires, a new mind with new thoughts. The old is gone. The new has come. Behold, we are uh, uh, created new in Christ. We might even say, as Jesus has taught us, we are born again. We're different. And God says, listen, I, w- I still want to work through you, but I can't do it if you're acting like the old Jacob. You need to be the new Israel. And how is he going to work through him? Well, I love this. I think this is my favorite verse in this whole chapter. And God said to him, verse 11, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. You say, wait a second, I heard that already. Yeah, you're right. Genesis 1, he creates man and woman. First command, be fruitful and multiply. Floods the earth, gets Noah aside. He says to him, be fruitful and Multiply calls Abraham, Genesis 17, he calls Abraham and says, be fruitful and multiply. So what does that mean? Be fruitful and multiply. We see that throughout scripture. Well, at the very least, what that means is God loves babies, okay? Amen. Amen? He likes kids, okay? You know, a- any God who says, call me father, that's a strong indication he's into children, okay? They're like, well, what-, what should I call you? How about dad? You, know, you like kids, don't you? Yeah, I kind of do. Okay. Be- I mean, this is what we see. God loves a lineage God loves a legacy. God wants us to pass on what we know to the next generation. After all, who's going to preach and serve and evangelize and worship and all the rest when we're gone? It's our kids, isn't it? Not just our kids, but certainly we want to leave Christ followers behind us. And they leave Christ followers behind them. We want a legacy. My brothers and sisters, you need a vision for your life, for your family, Wait, uh, how, so, so many people are living life like the biggest question on their mind is, What do I do on Saturday? That should not be us. We should be asking, What should I do now so that four generations from now, the world is different because of what God did through me? Right? And, and I've told you many times listen, I, this has taken a hold of my heart. I, I am personally starting a nation, I, 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 it's the car nation, and we are right? This is what we're doing. Uh, My life is not about me. Uh, I want to teach my kids to have this vision. Life is not about them. It's, It's about what we do in this world and what we leave behind. And some of you have been brought to faith radically, and God has started a new work in you, and you need to think in terms of being a patriarch, or, or, or a matriarch. Not oppressive. Not what I mean by that is your family was sending you one direction. These were the values. This was the vision this family was imparting to you. You come to Christ and you say, well, I'm no longer going that way. We're going this way. And I'm going to lead my children to go this way. And if God gives them to me, my grandchildren to go this way. So that we might change this world for Christ. We often, so often talk about our personal relationship with God. And we should. It is personal. But the Bible talks just as often as a generational relationship with God. That we pass it on. There's no guarantees. Our children have to believe. We can't make them Christians. But we can do our best to tell them of God's truth. Right? God, God says, be fruitful, multiply. Now, I don't know if you notice, Our church is full of babies. Okay? Yeah, and teens. And, and kids. Right? And we ought to praise, praise God for all the kids in this church. You are doing a really good job and being fruitful and multiplying. Okay? okay? So praise, praise God for that. Of course, now what that means is there are many ministry opportunities with, with, with nursery and, and, and children and, and teenagers... And, and we need you to be involved. Our, our kids are in a children's worship right now. We need people working in that ministry. We need people in our Sunday school and our youth ministry and on the nursery rotation. And I don't know where we stand on the nursery rotation, but a little while ago, my daughters were working like twice a month, and Daddy was getting a little upset with that because I don't want my daughters working the nursery that often. And so we need other people signing up for that nursery rotation. And i am tell you, you call my bluff on this. I, I'm going to start working the nursery once a month if you're not going to do it. You say, I'll, I'll preach from the nursery, but I'll, I'll work the nursery. And if you don't think I can uh, change a diaper and preach at the same time, just ask my family. They've seen it done many, many times, okay? And so, you want that? Bring it on. We need to be pouring into our kids. God says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, you got to admit that's kind of crazy thing to tell a man who already has 12 kids. Right? He kind of It's like, I already did that. What, you want more kids? Well, I think this command to be fruitful and multiply is not just about having children, but about having spiritual children. It's just not about birth. It's about new birth. And I think we're on the right track because you just read on in verse 11. A nation, okay, will come from you. That's Israel, a nation. And a company of nations shall come from you. So you have Israel, the nation coming from him. But then you have a company of nations will come from Jacob. Who's the company of nations? We are. Right, People from every nation praising the God of Jacob. And so we see that this is not just about physical descent, it's about spiritual descent. In in some ways, be fruitful, multiply is the Old Testament's great commission. That we are to make converts uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I just want to tell you, these words are for you as well, my brothers and sisters. Be fruitful and multiply. And we are when we bring people to faith in Jesus when we're witnessing, when we're discipling, when we're obeying, when we're planting churches. This is what, this is obeying this command to be fruitful and multiply. As you know, two months ago, we planted Lovettsville Baptist Church. We sent 15% of our members, half of our elders, 12 miles north to start a a faith community. I praise God for that. I just want to let you know, we're not done doing that. The elders are already in preliminary discussion about what it will take for us to plant a church in Berryville. So we're already thinking about it. We're thinking three to five years. So it's gonna take a little bit of time to kind of train us up and get us back to that point. But we're not done. Okay? So we 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 want to plant churches. You want to know? listen, Hamilton Baptist Church will never become a mega church. okay, this is as big as we're getting, whoever can fit in this room, okay, we're not going to two services, we're not going to multi-sites, and all that, this is it, we're not building a new building, okay, at least a new sanctuary, this, this is it, this is as big as we get, so we're just going to start spinning out churches, we don't want to be a mega church, we want to be a mother church, well, little faith communities where the gospel is preached, and Christ is followed, and Jesus is worshiped, and neighbors are loved well in those neighborhoods, and the elders are excited about that. We're also not just thinking about church planning. We're thinking about church revitalizing. There are churches around us that are dying, right? They're they're on death's door. Their membership is, is down very low. And we're praying that God might provide opportunities for us to send a handful of members under new leadership into those churches to see if God might bring new life to that church. We're we're excited about that, right? And we want to continue to do this because we want to be fruitful and multiply. And I hope in a handful of years, some of you will say, you know, when when you say, well, what have I done with my life? Right? You say, well, I I went to Berryville and God used me, at least in part, this is the story of my life now. God used me to plant a faith community that did not exist so that Jesus could be honored and the gospel could advance. And it's just not planting churches. My my prayer is that some of you college students would think about, listen, what what if God might call me to the nations? I, I just, I just spent two, uh, a time in two different nations that has such a desperate need. It's just, I mean, there's, there's two million people in this people group that I was at. Just that, 200 believers. There's 200 believers. And that some of you college students might say, "Hey, rather than graduating college and jumping right into my career, Pastor knows of two year opportunities, paid a salary. You don't raise your own support. Where I could go and I could live in a foreign land, learn a language, see what God is doing, and be part of that. Don't you want would that be a legacy for your life?" Or even some of you high school graduates, you realize that that after high school, rather than running off to college, you could spend six months overseas. We could arrange this with people we know, relationships we have as a church overseas, ministering to a missionary community. Like you could spend those six months just pouring into these missionaries who are living their lives in a foreign land, see what God is doing. I I pray that, that some of you would be burdened with this. Let this be your heart. As God says to us, hey, Hamilton Baptist Church, you need to be fruitful and multiply. We're going to build an altar there and build an altar there and build an altar there. That's God's plan for the world. In fact, notice how God introduces himself. He says, I am, look what he says in verse 11. I am God Almighty. (laughs) I'm God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, why mention Almighty? I mean, is he just flexing? Right? I just want to remind you. I don't think so. I think his almightiness will enable the obedience to be fruitful and multiply. I think you could reverse it. Be, you be fruitful and multiply because I am God Almighty. In other words, I'm not leaving you to your resources to multiply. My almightiness is going to accomplish it. So you can have confidence in your witness at high school. You can. Like you're speaking about Jesus and you think, I, I look like a total fool. They're not even listening to me. They're going to mock me. But it's not up to you. It's up to the almightiness of God to build his kingdom. You can have confidence in church planning. You have confidence in being a light in your workplace. Right? You, you, I, I pray you who think I, I don't, I'm afraid to witness. It's not going to work. They're not going to believe. Let these words echo in your heart. I am God almighty. You go and be fruitful and multiply. When you're tempted to fear, you have a sense of your inadequacy. We serve the almighty God. And so Christ is declared through the power of our almighty God. Let him do the work. It reminds me of what Jesus says. I said it just a little while ago. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples. This is just, this is just the Old Testament Great Commission right here. In fact, he goes on and more promises. Verse 12, the land that I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you and I will give, uh, give the land to your offspring after you. And they will receive it in about 400 years as Joshua leads Israel into the promised land. But this promise of the land is, is just uh, uh, immediately fulfilled in the nation of Israel. It ultimately points us to the new earth in which God will give to his children. We too have been promised a new land, a new earth which Christ will reign over. Jacob responds again in verse 13 and 14. Then God went up from him in the place he had spoken him spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place he had spoken with him a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob builds this memorial. He says, I, I don't want to forget this time which God spoke to me. Right? I keep forgetting God. <laughs> I don't want to forget anymore. I don't want to forget what you've asked me to do. So he makes a memorial. I think it's good to have memorials. Reminders of what God has done. You have a little memorial on your desk. I, I have one on my bookshelf. A little memorial in your car, in your home. of What God has done This powerful time in which God has worked in your life. It's right? a reminder. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. I think we're taking it next week. It's a memorial of what Jesus has done uh, for us and who we are in Him. And you see, Jacob pours out a drink offering on it. That's a, that's a celebration. He's pouring out wine on it. This is a, this is a party offering, if you will. They, they pour out wine as a way to, to celebrate that God has spoken to me. This is a, an offering of joy and, and rejoicing. And then on top of that, he pours out oil on it, which is a way to consecrate the pillar, to set it aside. This is a holy place for me. And he renames it. Uh, once again, you see in verse 15, so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Right? Bethel, this is, this is the house of God. This is, this is beautiful, what's, got, what's happening in this man's life. But even though he's blessed, once again, we see that it's all not going to be easy. It's, listen, me telling you that God Almighty is behind your witness doesn't mean your witness isn't going to be easy. Uh, it's not going to be easy to live for him. The blessing of God does not mean life is easy as we see sorrow and sin strike again in verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had a hard labor. as we turn to lastly see number four, Jacob's future. Rachel's pregnant. You see there in verse 16? okay? He's obeying, He's multiplying, gets right to it, evidently. Uh, and, uh, and, and now Rachel has a son. We, we rejoice for Rachel because remember she has only one son. His name is Joseph at this point. Joseph means may he add. So when she has Joseph, she's already thinking, about her next son. In fact, we see her praying immediately after the birth of Joseph, may God give me another. And you see, God does. And yet, her labor is difficult, which is part of the curse on the daughters of Eve. In fact, you might even remember that Rachel once prayed, or not prayed, but said to her husband Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Some have thought that to be sadly prophetic because now it is the gift of children that will take her life. The midwife sees it coming, doesn't she, as you see in verse 17. When her labor was hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. Right, she's trying to console her by telling her, Your prayers have been answered. But Rachel sadly will not be consoled, as you see in verse 18. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. She says, Call him Ben Oni. as she as she dies. Ben oni means son. Ben means Hebrew word for son, oni sorrow, Son of my sorrow. Right? In other words, name him sadness.? Okay? That's not a good name. Right? What's your name? Uh, I'm depression. Oh, okay. right? That's not good. And so J- Jacob, Jacob takes charge. We see this happening here, don't we? Jacob overrules her. He names him. Now, now I'll tell you this, every other child he's had. Who's named them? The wives. He's never named a single child. Okay. And, and, uh, and they've, they've, they've you've got crazy names. Like one kid's name is Vegas. The other kid's name is Payday. I mean, some really wild names. He doesn't seem to care at all. But he has a son. Wife calls him depression. He says, no, that's not happening. So we're going to call him Benjamin. Ben, you hear the Ben, son. Son of my right hand, right? Son of my strength. Son of my glory. The Lord sits at the right hand of God. The side of strength. Because he doesn't want his son, I think this is wise, he doesn't want his son's name to be a memorial that his birth caused his mother's death. He doesn't need to carry that burden. He says, no way, we're not doing that. And so he's the son of of my glory. Well, once again, the pilgrims stop here in verse 20, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. He set up a headstone. A pillar, all previous pillars have been given to God. This one is for his beloved wife. They'll come back into this land. 400 years later, the headstone will still be there. I'm told, I don't know if this is true, you can still visit even to this day in Bethlehem. right? So, um, and there he buries his wife. Burial number two, if you're keeping count. And by the way, Jacob's going to carry the wound of his favored wife being, being buried. Um, we'll get to Genesis 48. He's going to be recounting the story of his life. And he'll interrupt it to talk about the death of his wife, Rachel. And so, may I just I take a moment just to point out, um, not because I want to, but because I think it's in the text. Um, friends, if you're married, about half of you are one day going to bury your spouse. Right? And if There's actually been a lot of that in this church the past couple years. Some of you know that. Uh, and so that, that, that's where we're headed. We see it right here in the passage. And I just want to encourage you, therefore, to make the most of the time that you have with your spouse. I want this little verse here to be an encouragement for you today to begin to fix what's wrong in your marriage. Because there are about two dozen people sitting in the pews right now who will testify to us, you don't have very long with them. And there will come a day when you'll wake up and they will no longer be in your bed. it won't be there, so make it right now. Now, by God's grace, we'll see them again. Notice the description of her death in verse 18. I love this. As her soul was departing. And the Bible is telling us that there is life after death, right? The Death is not the cessation of our existence, it's the departure. The, the depart- The parting of our soul from our body, right? And our soul goes and exists with God until Christ returns to this earth, renews the earth, and then our souls will be reunited with a a renewed body, like Christ's body, one day. And so we see this generation uh, dying off as we begin to transition. And we see another generation rising up. And sadly, this next generation is not any better than the last. As you see in verse 21, Israel journeying on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Uh, While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So that's an interesting way to follow up a funeral, isn't it? The father buries one wife, and his son defiles another as he lays with his stepmom. Some have suggested this is more political than sexual. Rachel, who was the matriarch of this family, was, of course, the favored wife. Who's going to take her place now that she's died? Or perhaps Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah, not Reuben's mom, Leah. And so this act would ensure, of course, that Bilhah could not be the favorite as she has now uh, committed adultery against her husband, perhaps leaving that position open for Reuben's mom, Leah. We're not sure. Now, if you only have one wife, you don't have these problems, okay? Uh, So let me uh, encourage you to touch that goal, right? Others think that this might be a, a, a much more defiant attempt to usurp his father's authority. There's a custom in the Near East that if you are able to sleep with a king's concubines, it is a declaration that that king has been overthrown and you now rule. We're going to see that. You see this with Absalom, the son of David, who takes his father's concubines up to the roof and publicly lays with them as a declaration that David is no longer in charge around here. I am. And so it might be that Reuben is seeking to take power from Jacob, his father. Of course, the plan, plan's not going to work. In fact, 40 years later, as Jacob's on his deathbed, he says to Reuben, in this abiding anger towards Reuben, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruit of my strength. Yet you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it." So the Reuben, the, Reuben is the firstborn. He has now been disqualified to lead the next generation. What about the secondborn or the thirdborn? Well, I'm afraid those are Simeon and Levi. Remember them from last chapter? They massacred an entire village of men, um, so they are out too. Which leads us to the fourthborn. Anybody know his name? Of course, it is Judah. The rights of the firstborn are going to be now removed from these earlier three, these older three, setting the stage for the preeminence of the lineage of Judah, as we'll see in our study of uh, the remainder of the Book of Genesis. Well, now J- Jacob's family is complete, so we turn to a quick lineage here in verse twenty-two. Uh, while uh, excuse me. Now the sons of uh, Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, uh, she has six, right? Reuben, Jacob's firstborn; Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel: Joseph and Benjamin. The son of Bilhah, uh, Rachel's servant: Dan and Naphtali. Uh, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant: Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam, Iran. So we now see that he, he has twelve kids. His his clan is finished, which is now going to set the stage for the, lineage of, uh, of, excuse me, for the nation of Judah, which I believe will set the stage for the 12 apostles of the church to lead us into the fulfillment of Israel, uh, namely God's people, the church, as we wrap up uh, with Jacob and moving on to the next ger- generation. So the Bible's trying to prepare us for what's to come at this point. In fact, you see the generational shift continue, this, this imagery in verse 27. Uh, we're almost done here. And Jacob said to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had a sojourn. So he now finally made it back to his dad, Isaac. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Okay? And so he's, he's come, he's going to live with his father. We know Jacob is going to live with his father for the next 12 years. Or live with his father for his father's last 12 years, I should say. And then his father would die, as we see in verse 29. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died. And was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And so I don't know if you're keeping track. This is the third funeral in Genesis 35. Death continues its Salt, But again, I think you see beautiful language. This language there in verse 29. Isaac was gathered to his people. Who, who are his people? Well, certainly his dad Abraham and his mom Sarah. Noah, Seth perhaps. It's a picture that there is a communion of saints after death. The Old Testament is teaching us that we enter into the realm where our family and friends exist. God rules. We're, We're with these people. In fact, many Christians used to testify this on their deathbeds. Today, morphine is very common. We give morphine to people who are dying to put put them in comfort. And and they sleep quite a bit under morphine. But you you can read testimonies uh, all over the place. Before we started doing this, when Christians would die at the very moments of death, they would begin to speak about their family. It would be a time of joy and and excitement as they look on on, to what they're about to be embraced in. Of course, we know the Bible teaches us very clearly in the New Testament, heaven is a place of reunion, right? We're going to be gathered with our people. Praise God for that. The church, we call it the church triumphant. It's up there in heaven. One day I'll be gathered there by God's grace, and I trust you will. Why? Because God is faithful. Don't you see God's faithfulness here? In fact, when Jacob left the promised land, he asked God, we're in that stairway to heaven there in Bethel. He said, will you bring me back to my father's house? And Despite everything that's happened to this man, and the ups and the downs and going here and going there, where do we find him? He's back with his dad because God is faithful to his promises. In fact, if you look over in chapter 37 and verse 1, it says Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. He's living in the promised land, just as God has promised him. I'll tell you, Christians, you too will come to the promised land because God will be faithful to bring you there. I love how the book of Hebrews puts it when it says, By faith Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. So Abraham knew the promised land is just a pointer to a better promised land. A promised land in which we'll all go into if we trust in Christ. I leave you here with just a short story of my favorite Baptist preacher of the 17th century, John Bunyan, who was converted, a very Godless man converted as an adult by eavesdropping on heavily minded women as they were washing clothes. The language is somewhat dated, but I'm sure you could follow it. When Bunny would write in his autobiography, they talked how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus. And with the promises that they had been refreshed and comforted. Methought they spake as if joy did make them speak. They spake with such pleasantness of scripture and with such appearances of grace in all that they said that it was as if they had found a new world. <laughs> of course, they had. They had found a new world. They at least saw it by faith. And so have you, Christian. And so, how can, can anyone find this new world through Jacob's greater son? There's one little phrase we skipped over, verse 11. God is speaking to Jacob. He says, a nation and company of nations will come from you. But note at the end of verse 11. And kings shall come from your own body. Namely, I think one in particular, we think about this time of year. It's King Jesus. Who would come, a physical descendant of Jacob, and who died for the sins of Jacob, and for my sins, and for the sins of all who would trust in him. He would be raised from the dead three days later. And now the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so as we end our time in God's word, I offer you the salvation from the almighty God, not through your good works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. If you would even trust in him as we pray. Father, we thank, we're thankful for your word and the encouragement it is to us. We're thankful, Father, of your great grace that is so clearly seen uh, as you pour it out upon this man and his family. We need that grace as well. And we have found it in none other than Jesus. We believe that he has died to pay for our sins. We believe that he has risen from the dead. And we believe that he is our king and we belong to him. And so we thank you for that great blessing in Christ. And now we pray that we would follow you in obedience and joy, that we would repent of our sin and seek revival as is needed, knowing that you are eager to bless us and work in our lives. we ask that even the scripture that we consider this morning would lead us into greater obedience and joy as we seek after Jesus Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I mentioned to you that uh, today...